On this week's episode of Doing Disney, we stroll down Portobello Road, take a dip into the beautiful Briny Sea and visit the island of Naboomboo as we watch Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Theme song guy. On this podcast, we let it go because Hakuna Matata and the bare necessities will always be our guide to infinity and beyond. All it takes is faith, trust and a little bit of pixie dust. We know that life is better under the sea because on this podcast, we do Disney. Hi, I'm your hostess with the mostest, Kelly Meehan, and welcome to this week's episode of Doing Disney. Today I'm joined by one of the biggest Disney fans I know, a fantastic quiz night teammate, someone who's contributed to winning many a restaurant voucher and bottles of wine, Mr. Dylan Lewis. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks, Kelly. Um, I was very interested in Disney, so um, when the opportunity came up, I'm uh, very excited to be part of it all. Fantastic. Start at the beginning. Bedknobs and Broomsticks, released in 1971, starring Angela Lansbury as Miss Price and David Tomlinson as Professor Emilius Brown. Set in 1943, it tells the story of Miss Price, an apprentice witch who was learning spells from the Professor Emilius Brown Correspondence College of Witchcraft and Wizardry, as she hoped to provide support to the war effort. She takes in three children evacuated from London, Charles, Carrie and Paul, on the condition that they be found a more suitable home if possible. Her most recent lesson sees her learning to ride a broom, but when the children are attempting to run from the house back to London, they spot her flying and falling, which snaps the broom in half. The following morning, the children confront Miss Price, accusing her of being a witch and presenting the broken broom. In order for their cooperation to keep her secret, a deal is struck. Youngest sibling Paul provides Miss Price with a bed knob from the spare bed, and she enchants it with the famous travelling spell. After receiving a letter from Professor Emilius Brown stating that the college is closing without the final lesson Miss Price was anticipating, everyone jumps on the bed and travels to London to find Professor Brown. Upon arrival, we see Professor Brown is not quite as proficient in magic as it would seem. When Miss Price turns him into a rabbit using one of his own spells, he is shocked to discover they actually work, as he merely took the spells from old books. Miss Price states she needs the substitutionary locomotion spell, and they peruse Portobello Road in order to find the other half of the book Professor Brown had been using. They are accosted by a gentleman in the market who works for the bookman, who has also been searching for the other half of the book for many years. On combining both halves, neither one contains the words to the spell, but states that the Star of Astaroth, owned by the sorcerer of the same name, contains the words. However, it is said to be only legend, and that the medallion is to be found on the island of Nabumbu, which is governed by animals. Escaping from the bookman on the bed, they travel to the beautiful briny sea before reaching the mainland of the isle. King Leonidas, the ruler of the Isle of Nabumbu, is seen to be wearing the medallion. However, he is distraught as his football game is without a referee. Professor Brown volunteers and at the conclusion of the match stealthily switches his whistle for the star and they use the bed to travel home. Back in her country home, Miss Price practices the substitutionary locomotion spell, which brings inanimate objects to life. She is also informed that the children have been placed in a different home, which prompts Miss Price to ask instead that they stay with her, as they have all become fond of one another. However, when they ask Mr Brown if he too will stay, he decides to return to his life in London and leaves for the train station, waiting for the next train which would depart the following morning is at this time the village of Pepperinjai has been targeted for a Nazi German exercise in preparation for the invasion and they overtake Miss Price's home. Miss Price and the children are moved to the town museum where many suits of armour are housed. 
Ms. Price uses the substitutionary locomotion spell to bring all of the armor and weaponry to life and fends off the invasion as she fulfills her goal of helping the war effort. Upon conclusion, we see Ms. Price and the children waving Mr. Brown off as he enlists in the army after reuniting with them during the invasion. As well as Paul still retaining the bed knob, alluding that while Miss Price may no longer be practicing magic, the bed will still be able to take the family on new adventures. The film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Scoring, as well as Best Original Song, and won for Best Visual Effects. Tale as old as time. Now, I did ask what your favourite picks were, but I have been very keen for a long time to do a Bed Knobs and Broomsticks episode. And I know this is one Alan mentioned you guys had on VHS or has been kicking around for a while. So I did ask if you wouldn't mind joining me this episode. What are your first memories of the film? First memories would be um, probably the only memory I had before rewatching it recently was um, all the animals playing the soccer. Yeah. Um, all the kings, sort of minions playing against all the other herbivores, I think the other team was. And probably the best part I remember was um, the big rhino running through and just taking out everyone. And when he gets the um, soccer ball stuck in his nose, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a fair few um, little bits and pieces through that game that's just a good laugh. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. Those are the parts we sort of do cling to as a child because that seems the most fantastical and the most magical, you know, that you could actually play a game of soccer with walking, talking animals. So, And the mix of animation and live action, the Disney movies really do stick out in our brains for that. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely one of the, uh, the better memories I've got of the, the older original sort of Disney's that I was watching as a kid. So how long do you reckon it's been since you've watched this one? Um, before watching it the other day, gee, it would have been 10 plus years. Before oh, wow. Seeing it. And what are your thoughts on rewatching yeah, it again? Yeah. Nice to revisit it? It was good. Good. Yeah, it was, it was, there was lots of, um, lots of scenes in there that I just forgot. And then watching it again, uh, it just laugh as just, just as much as I did the, uh, the first time I watched it. Lovely. Well, this one's a little bit tricky for me to pinpoint when I first watched it because I remember having the VHS from a very early age. So I'd say my first watch would be six or seven. I, I don't know if I rented it before my mum bought it. I rang her the other day and I'm like, weird question. Don't know if you can answer it. Do you remember buying me the VH copy of Benham's and Broomsticks? And she's like, no, I don't because I don't like it. So I don't remember watching it with you. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why do I like it then? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> so this is just one of those quirky ones that I must have just picked up on the re-release or had the Disney branding and just ended up buying it and really loved it because I've always liked or been drawn to things with the old English countryside. And, of course, Angela Lansbury's very comforting. She's a great to watch on film. And as I said before, the live action animation is something I'll always revisit. So this one, Mary Poppins, they're the ones I go back to time and time and again. So I've got big nostalgia goggles for this one. <laughs> so one of the good classics. Yeah. It's my favourite part because you'll see. Rewatching it again, what is your favourite scene with the film? I think it's, it has to be during that soccer game again. Um, uh, the vultures where the, um, the medics on the side of the field and they're very excited trying to take off um, take off the injured players 
they're running on with a big smile, ready to really take the victims. They run on with the stretcher. When, yeah. they, uh, when the lion just picks them up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Just those little details of like what animals they ended up picking for each side. Like you said, one side's the herbivores, the other side's, I can't remember what the team names ended up called. It's like dirty yellows and true blues or something like that. But the little vulture medics with yes. little stretcher and they hop on and just the, the touches of the animal kingdom <laughs> is very clever. What, what else in the soccer game do you like? It's just one of them classic random Disney things. There's just so much thrown into it and it's just chaos, but it's very well thought out chaos. And it's just really the really old Disney feel to it. It's, it's got that little touch of humour and whimsy to it where you've got the, the human as the referee and all the little touches they do with, say, the crocodile having his, his tail stepped on so then his jaws come out. And just little funny things like that or the ostrich when it finally gets the ball and it starts kicking it around itself. It's, it's very clever. <laughs> I think I'm going to pick when Miss Price collects her broom and tries to fly for the first time. Because back in the day watching this, it was before Harry Potter or things like that. The only people doing magic in the real world was this movie for me and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So seeing a woman get a broom and teach herself magic and learn how to fly, that's always had a very big impact on me. So I just like when she creeps up and sees that the children are asleep and she turns around and they have that shot of Angela Lansbury and she's so excited. She bolts down the stairs. The cat Cosmic Creepers is following her, which, side note, best name for any cat in anything ever. I tried so hard to convince Alan to call our cat Cosmic Creepers and Cosmo for short, but we ended up with Astaroth, so I guess in a different bed and bring six names is still good. But Cosmic Creepers, great name. And she, she says, I call him that because that's the name he came with. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> she goes downstairs she turns on the lamp she um unwraps her broom and you get that voiceover from david tomlinson about um this is your broom and this is how you write and she um takes the letter and reads the instructions and she tries to write and she's like ladies take a graceful sideways position but of course when she tries to try and fly <laughs> the broom just straight away to the wall and she ends up just sitting on it and controlling it and you get that swell of the music she ends up zooming out the window and flying over the English countryside. And, and to me, that's just one of my favourite shots in anything because it just made me believe it could happen. It could happen to me. I can do that. And if I she watched, can do it, anyone can do it. Absolutely. I watched the behind-the-scenes feature and they said that there was supposed to be a song there, A Step in the Right Direction, and I hadn't known that before. And that's the music that's playing as she's flying. So that little, um, the musical score that accompanies it was meant to be a song that ended up being cut and they lost all the footage, but they kept the vocal recording. And it's, it's nice. I could see a song going there. She like dances around with the broom and is all gung-ho about she can do this. And yeah, it looks good. Yeah, definitely, definitely could fit a, a good musical in that one there. Yeah. You ain't never had a friend like me. So who's your favourite character in the film? It was tricky, tricky to try to pick. There's a couple there, but I think I'd have to go for the youngest of the boys, um, Paul, I think his name was. Yeah, why is that? Um, just, he's just that cheeky little boy. <laughs> he just says it like it is. He's got some very interesting comments about a few things. 
it just reminds me a lot about myself so um oh I can uh, see it my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I love when um they ask Paul to come over and he pulls out everything that's in his pocket it's like bit of blue glass lovely bit of string <laughs> it's just those little comments <laughs> like that he's definitely the the little comic relief button on the film do you have a favorite yeah, scene he- with Paul of what he does in the film yeah, probably pulling all the stuff out of his pocket would be one of them. Um, but he's just got some really classic quotes in there as well, just very well timed and just brings that humour into all, throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and he's such an integral part of the film as well because he's the one that finds the book of the island of Novumbu in the nursery. He's the one that has the bed knob and controls it. Um, so really there's, he's like the crux of, of pushing the narrative forward throughout the film. Does it very quietly as well. He doesn't stand out too much in the background, but he does does a lot. Yeah, yeah. As you said, it's it's hard to pick because really it comes down to Miss Price, Professor Brown, the kids, possibly the animals, but those are the key players throughout the film. I do enjoy Professor Brown, especially as a contrast to seeing David Tomlinson as Mr. Banks in Mary Poppins, where he's that very stern, firm, paternal figure. So to see him play something more comical and, and with full of whimsy and joy is, is nice and a, a fun character. But Angela Lansbury as Miss Price really anchors and controls the film throughout. She's just, I can see myself being Miss Price one day, wishing I could learn magic and being just a independent, smart, in control, self-assured woman. And it's great because we don't see a lot of mature female heroines in, in films and especially Disney movies. So to see um, Angela Lansbury portray this character is, is fantastic. And I just enjoy that she takes it upon herself to help the war effort and is determined to practice and learn spells. We don't see that she's immediately gifted at it. She still messes up the um, filigree effigy, effigy, perigee spell to turn people into rabbits. So it only works very very quickly and she always needs her notebook because she gets halfway through and um, you hear the little downbeat of the music and she can't remember what she's saying but um just a very a very strong female character it's it's great to see throughout the film we see that she opens up you know at, at the beginning she's not oh, don't want to take kids into my house and this is my house and don't touch things and this is what we eat for dinner and all that but having the kids around and then meeting Professor Brown, we don't see her completely transform or lose who she is. It's just an enhanced, more open, warm version of who she is. So I appreciate that. It's not, oh, this man came into my life and I'm completely going to change who I am now. It's like, no, she's just more open and welcoming to to family. And it's, it's sweet. One song. I have but one song. So Dylan, what's your favourite song? Favourite song would have to be Portobello Road. Good choice. Strong choice. Why is that? There's just lots going on again. There's just lots of random dancing, um, just things everywhere. And again, like I said earlier, it's just classic Disney. It's just very well thought out chaos. There's bits from all over the world. And it's just... It just reminds me of, of the travelling travels that I've done and it's just a lot of fun in the song. It brings out a lot of that comedy side of it, whereas uh, some of the film is sort of a bit slower. 
that's sort of upbeat and, and lots of fun, lots of colours, dancing and lots of music. Oh, fantastic. I like what you said about organised chaos. I think that that's definitely true of, of the choreography and the mix of culture that they bring to the film was really great to see. So it does remind me of being in England and walking down those market streets and seeing all the vibrant colours and different people and mishmash of everything. And I like how they build the song. You know, it starts with them just walking hand in hand down the street, slow start, and then it builds up. It pans to all the different choreography moments and I think that's so great when I watched the um behind the scenes they talked about how they ended up cutting a lot of that and it's only been in the restoration that you've seen a lot more of that dance sequence so I think they cut it down to like two three minutes but back in the restoration it's back up to seven and they still even cut cut a little bit more of that so it's great to see it took me a really long time to realize the words of the song and what was really happening because I'm as a kid, I'm like, oh, look at all this great stuff. It's like all that jewellery and the food and the, the statues and stuff, but it's everyone selling their knockoff wares, trying to make it as the real thing. And so the lyrics are brilliant with Professor Brown going through and just dismissing everyone. So my favourite line, Rembrandt's El Greco's Toulouse Latrecos, painted last week on the banks of the Thames. That's so great because uh, when, when I went back to Europe, and I'm walking through the markets. I'm like, is that something valuable? Could, could I sell this on Antiques Roadshow? That sort of thing. But of course, it's just it's just all fakes and very alabaster. No, it's genuine plaster. I think it's just very, very cleverly written. Do you have a favourite dance scene or moment from that, that segment? Um, I think it's just the whole range of it. There's no, no particular one that I like. It's just how they've got different cultures all intertwined into it, different kinds of... Uh, because the music, um, and it's absolutely, just, it just keeps switching from uh, from one to another, and it just mixes in so well, it's so so culturally uh, diverse and and fun and loud. And yeah, it's great to see like um, everyone just start picking up their instruments, or all the different cultures start walking through and just just show show what they've got. It's great, and then you get the bell at the end as it's all packed up and time to go, and it ends on a sad. Everyone packs up their little stalls and walks off. For the soundtrack, I guess it's not the heights of Mary Poppins, but I do enjoy the songs written by the Sherman Brothers. As I said, I watched the behind the scenes featurette and it was fantastic because they talked about how they were laying the groundwork for Bedknobs and Broomsticks as they were doing Mary Poppins. So I don't mean to keep bringing up the comparison, but it is very um, two peas in a pod because you're working on sort of both things at a similar time with a lot of the same people and influence. So you can make the parallels in the soundtrack. Um, I appreciate the age of not believing now that I'm older and I can see why it was nominated for an Academy Award, but it is very slow. As you said, a lot of the movie is slow. So Portobello Road and the more jaunty, upbeat songs um, play play a lot better and Age of Not Believing just that little bit too slow and sentimental but I do like that they use that as the kickoff for the bed and the titular bed of the whole movie so they play Age of Not Believing and then they change it to a more upbeat swelling uh, violins as they are traveling and it's the traveling music so it makes you believe it's taking um, the lyrics of someone not believing and showing how real magic is out there so I, I do think that is a very clever use of, of music and lyric I will pick beautiful Briony C 
that's the other. I think it comes down to either Portobello Road or Beautiful Briny Sea as, as the two best. And they talked about how this was actually originally intended for Mary Poppins, which I found very surprising. But I'm glad they ended up using it for this one instead because otherwise it plays too similarly to Jolly Holiday for Mary Poppins. This one I like a lot because who hasn't wished that they could live under the sea? Especially if you watch Little Mermaid and things like that. Who hasn't wished that you could just go under the sea and breathe underwater and the fish would sing back to you and look at all the beautiful colours and things like that. So it's, um, it takes that, that Disney magic and, and brings it to the real world a little bit more. And I like that you get to hear both Angela Lansbury and David Tomlinson on it. It starts with just David Tomlinson, but then you bring in that more duet and it's very sweet how they stroll through the bottom of the sea on the bed and end up in the beautiful briny ballroom. And then they get off the bed and start dancing. And it's just got that nice slow jazz feel. And you can see them bonding. It's very sweet. They do the, um, we get along swimmingly and they bend backwards and form the little love heart from the bubbles. I think that's very cute. And then they win the cup. So I, I like this one. It's, um, it's just harmless, fun, very sweet tune. Any thoughts on Beautiful Briny Sea? Um, I, I like how they've differentiated completely to um, other sort of like Little Mermaid and stuff like that where very concentrated on being under the sea. Um, like the, the codfish is very businessman-like. He's yes. walking around with a suitcase. Um, <laughs> so it just sort of drags it right away from all those other, all those other ocean scenes you see through Disney. And it's just sort of very in, individualised very different and uh, sort of makes it a bit more special that under the ocean sort of scene that the yeah, Bedwells and Brutus has. Oh, you're absolutely right because this is our first introduction to the cartoon aspect. So seeing the, the codfish go past and, and talk to you in his little suit and seeing the, um, the octopus, the co- codfish and someone else, the flounder, the flounder and the cod playing cards, like they're doing the human activities, which we hadn't known so far was um, what had happened to this island. So it's a nice, subtle introduction. And I appreciate that they put going under the sea first before going to the Isle of Nubumbu. I think it, it sets up and it's a nice welcome to that, that fantasy world. Listen well, all of you. So, Dylan, what is your favourite quote from the film? It's one of the quotes from right up at the start. Um, it was the old farmer and the general. The general was driving his car, I think it was, and looking for the street. I can't remember what the street's name was now. Uh, pe- is Pepper and Jai and, for the village? Um, yes, that's the one. And it was uh, the farmer said that he can't tell him where it is because he might be a Nazi. And um, the officer said, I'm not a Nazi, I'm a British officer. And the farmer turned around and said, well, that's what you'd say if you was a Nazi, isn't it? That's what you say if you was a Nazi. Um, a very British humour. <laughs> yes, very and, true. And how he, how he pronounces Nazi. Na- Nazi? Nazi. Nazi, that's the <laughs> That's what you said if he was a Nazi. Very good. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to pick this, the quote from the scene where the children have discovered um, the broomstick and they're confronting her at the table the next morning. Charlie, the older brother, is attempting to 
extort, I guess, or blackmail better food from Miss Price for keeping her secret. And it's it's all in the delivery, but it's when Miss Price turns around and she says, have you ever considered what danger you might be in, Charles? It's just that way of flipping it around. And I just appreciate you really see the extent of the wit and the fast thinking and um, the personality of, of Miss Price. This is your badness level. How bad is the villain? I mean, it's the Nazis. <laughs> the plotline definitely went over my head as a little kid. It's just, you know, when you're watching it, those are the bad guys. The bad guys have shown up and taken them hostage. So I could not follow along what was happening, except the bad guys came, broke into the house, captured Miss Price and the children. So it wasn't until... Later on, when you learn about World War II, that it takes on a bit of a different tone and meaning. As a kid, I never understood what they were doing there, the Germans. It was very, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, just suddenly it's Germans for some reason. It wasn't until this watch through and I finally heard the German officer state it was an exercise to prepare for the invasion and to induce panic and spread mischief. This one's a little hard to rate because they really don't come into the end of the film and they end up being quite easily thwarted by the suits of armour. Any thoughts on the ending final scenes of the film? Yeah, I mean, being a Nazi is always not going to be nice. <laughs> And they're, they're very uh, <laughs> not very nice people, but I think the yeah the ending could have been a bit more. Uh, I mean, it could have been a bit more exciting or a bit more well thought, maybe a bit more um proper Nazi watching some tanks or something or other. Just just to see how how those suits of armor, how the magic would uh try to deal with with that, rather than just a couple of couple of um, people that would just run away. I mean, it's, it would be pretty scary to be shooting at something and then it just suddenly takes its head off and empties the bullets out in front of you. But I think you're, you're right. There are very low stakes at the end there. And I guess it's because it's just a very small raiding party on a very small village, but there's no big threat. So it is hard to sort of rate how evil the villain. The other one I thought you could possibly rate is the bookman because he's the other antagonist of the film. It's pretty bad that his sidekick pulls a knife on Mr. Brown in the markets to convince them to go to the locked basement. And then I don't know if you saw, but when they're threatening to leave, he opens his drawer and shows the biggest, dirtiest hunting knife that he gives to the guy to gut these kids. And I was a bit like, whoa, that is uncalled for. That came out of nowhere. <laughs> That's not a knife. This is a knife. Oh, I see. You've played knifey spoonie before. <laughs> it's very bad. So, yeah, very, very ruthless character. So I'd give him, like, a three. Like, so he's not in it for much, but what we see of him is, uh, yeah, not, not a lovely character. And the psychic Swinburne sort of alludes there's not much he hasn't done for that decrepit piece of old books. So, yeah, that, that's pretty bad. <laughs> and I don't know how they were going to get rid of the kids in that bed if, that's, if they did end up cutting them. <laughs> There was also a third person I thought could be classed as a villain as well. Yeah. The, um, the Lion King. <gasps> King, King Leonidas? 
Is that I think that's what they call him? What um, makes what makes hey, the king um, a villain? Just the aggressiveness beating up of everyone and even his little minions in his soccer team. They were they're all very ferocious, very bully like, just sort of trampling over the other team and beating up the referee. And just how the whole island was was very scared of of all of them. It's just big old grumpy lion. Oh, he, you can tell he rules the animal kingdom with an iron fist, especially, um, as you said, how he treats Mr. Birdie. Doesn't he yell so loud that the tent flap, like the bird comes pushed out of the tent because of just how he, his breath, his, how emphatically he's roaring? Yeah, he had, he had a bit of a tantrum over something and, and blew, blew all the players away and the tent blew away and then he scores a winning goal. Oh, yeah, is that when he just goes and blows the soccer ball over the goal line? and and you can tell like if it is very queen of hearts where if it's it's always as his way as your majesty so if he wasn't winning he's going to be cheating to win or everyone's going to be sad (laughs) what do you rate the king as a antagonist then a third i was going to say antagonist oh he'd be quite low as well he's not really (laughs) evil he's just grumpy yeah he'd be low on a sort of three as well He's just set in his ways. Practically perfect in every way. Any random thoughts on the film? Anything we haven't brought up yet that has stood out to you on your rewatch? I just like how different the idea of the movie is using a bed as a transport and and sort of introducing magic into it as well. Usually it's a, a broomstick or a wand or something else to do with magic. But this one is... A bed, just something that everyone's got in their own home and something that you'd never sort of associate with, with magic. And that's sort of the, the whole movie's based around this magical bed and, and they travel around on it. Oh, absolutely. As you said, it's something everyone's got in their home, so it's bringing that magic into your real world, into your life. So it's it's very well thought out. And even people throughout the film was like, what's this bed doing here? And how are you going to escape on this bed? And to the bed, Paul. And it's great. It, um, it works as, as a plot device throughout the film. What do you think of the town, the English little country town that they're in? It, it reminds me a little bit of, of back home, back in the UK. It's... um. It's sort of that classic sort of farm country village, very quiet and uh, and everyone knows everyone, everyone knows what's <laughs> going on. Um, but it's just really small and isolated, just away from everything. So it like when the when the Nazis came through, no one really knew about it until until they fought them all off and and then the word spread. So it's, it's just very isolated, very quiet. Sort of independent little villages. I like in the old Disney movies, they really have a reverence for uh, what has happened in, in our real world. So they'll, they'll bring in the old home guard and the men walking through the town in their army uniforms and they, they sing that song and it's all the people who fought in World War One who are getting ready for the attack. So I do appreciate that little real world touch to it. It, it, it grounds the film. So you've got... Um, the magical components of it, but it, it, it grounds it in a little bit of reality. The other scene I really like is um, Professor Brown and he gives him the address to his house and it's another one that just went right over my head that they walk into the house and they walk past the unexploded bomb 
and he talks about how it's the best friend he's ever had because for the first time in his life he can live like a king because everyone's flooded the area. I did not realise what it was until later on that everyone has um, fleed the, the vicinity of the area because it's a big unexploded bomb, but he gets to live in this lavish mansion almost with everything closed, uh, all the windows closed and things like that. And Charlie asks, why are we having this dinner by, uh, by candlelight? And Professor Brown says, oh, to, to enjoy each other's companies. No, more likely so the coppers don't see you like squatting here, basically. So I thought that was very clever. And it plays to the character of Professor Brown because this is someone who's very, um, oh, I can't use the term street smart because he's not street smart, but he's um, he's a hustler. He's trying to, he's a bit of a con artist, I guess, and he's just trying to make his way in the world so I think it's good um a good setting for that character and it also sets up when they go to the library to look for the book the song Eglantine and he talks about his dream to be a magician but he doesn't have have the um magic skills so that's why he's so enticed by her that she's the actual one with the talent so I like that so Dylan what score do you give the film out of 10? I gave it uh six and a half out of oh, ten. Six and a half. Why's that? It's a it's a it's a Disney classic. It's got some great scenes, some good music, um, memorable quotes and stuff, but it didn't really stand out as much as some of the animated movies that I that I really enjoy. And I think I sort of lean more towards enjoying those animated films rather than the uh than these um, live action kind of ones. It was a great film, but it's going to sit down at about six and a half. Would you rewatch it again anytime soon, or would you recommend it to anyone? I'd definitely recommend it. It's oh, uh, nice. it's it's got some great scenes, great music, and and some really funny quotes as well. But I think if you do watch it, you have to watch it very carefully because <laughs> very, very carefully, very well thought quotes and scenes put in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not very obvious some of the jokes, but you really need to watch it closely, otherwise you're going to miss a whole lot of the, uh, the jokes and the, the scenes. I like how you touch on the British humour because that, that does what it, it, it reminds me of that. It's very dry and sometimes you need to have it on the rewatch to sort of pick it up. Um, I give it a solid seven. I think it does suffer from being overshadowed by other live-action films, and as I've said many times throughout this episode, Mary Poppins is probably the biggest one that definitely sits in the shadow of of that. But I do think it's a little underappreciated and it doesn't come up in the conversation as much, so I'm definitely here to push it it forward a little bit more. But I'm glad you said you recommend it because sometimes I'm like, do I just have the nostalgia goggles so thick for this film that I can't see past it? Because sometimes that does happen. I think it's similar to, I think Goonies is one that comes up a lot where if you see it as a kid, you definitely appreciate it a lot more. And seeing it as an adult, you can be like, oh, I get it, but you don't feel the reverence for it and it doesn't hit as hard as when you're little and you can believe that those things can happen. So I, I do understand if someone, if I was to introduce it to someone now and they give it, a 6.5 or do they just say it's, it's only so so I, I can understand it I'm not um, gonna die on the hill for this film but I do enjoy it a lot so Don thank you so much for joining me today can't wait to have you back next time is there anything you've got on the mind that you might want to talk about next I'm just hoping that uh Disney keeps putting out some great movies can't wait to see this these new I think the newest one is Enchanto is the newest 
one that they've released. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be that'll be on my list to watch in the next couple of nights, hopefully. What's one of the more recent Disney's that you've enjoyed? Coco. I really enjoyed Coco. Just the, the really upbeat music, the colours, the just the very sort of fun, family orientated, and yeah, just the music itself was was good enough just to enjoy the movie. Oh, that was an instant classic for me. I think we'll definitely have to do an episode on Coco. And when you come to the end, <laughs> stop! Thank you for joining me on this episode of Doing Disney. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Doing Disney Podcast and Twitter at Doing Disney Pod.